You're listening to Wealth Tech on Deck, a podcast about the future of wealth management technology, brought to you by Life Yield. Here's your host, Jack Sherry. Hello, everyone. Thanks for joining us on this edition of Wealth Tech on Deck. Each week, I have the privilege of speaking with industry leaders around issues that inform and advance financial advice, wealth management, retirement, and technology. I talk to those who are leading the way as we seek to help advisors, clients, participants, and firms enjoy better financial outcomes all around the confluence of digital and human advice. I've invited my friend John Connors back for another visit. John is the CEO of The Boathouse Group, a large digital marketing agency based in Boston. John stands out in a variety of ways. He's six foot four, so certainly there's that. And then, of course, of the 60 guests we've had on the podcast, he's probably the least familiar to our audience, yet he was the sixth most popular podcast over the past year. Still can't figure out why exactly, but the only thing I can come up with is that what he has to say resonates. All kidding aside, the reason I asked John to uh, return is he knows as much as anyone about the power of narrative. He's going to share some of that today. I also wanted him to talk about the total Merrill story. For those that may not have been born at that point or are are unfamiliar, it was a game-changing period and ad campaign in our business. And frankly, it's the way our business is done today. And we'll get into the details on that in a moment. So, John, welcome back to Wealth Tech on Deck. Great to be with you. Thank you, Jack. So, John, you created the uh, Total Merrill program with your client, Merrill Lynch, back in 2003. It was a groundbreaking program that changed our industry for good, and I do mean good, and it still resonates today. We'll get into Total Merrill in a moment and examine what that might mean as we are seeing all this change happening in our industry around the trend most leading firms are pursuing that of building what I call comprehensive advice platforms. But let's start a little before Total Merrill. John, I think a little background would be useful for our audience. If you would, please describe the uh, work you did with large firms like Merrill in building the first websites in our industry and others. And then we'll get into the Total Merrill story. They seem to go hand in glove. So, John, take it away. Well, thank you, Jack. So, started working with the biggest agency in Boston, Hill Holiday, biggest agency in New England. Went, they sold to Interpublic and went to work for the biggest agency in the world, McCann Erickson, to your point, working for large clients, the likes of Microsofts and GMs and Coca-Colas. And then in 01, came back and started my own firm called Boathouse, sort of tired of the BS in some of the big firms. And one of the variables, one of the opportunities we got early was on Merrill Lynch. And so we were working with the team down there, you know, sadly when 9-11 happened. And if you remember back, Wall Street closed down and people were wondering what was going to happen with their money. And so we were part of the team sort of that mobilized to talk to advisors about talking to their clients that their money was safe and, you know, just buttressing people to know that everything was okay with their savings, their retirement savings, their investment accounts, and getting advisors to sort of not just be quiet. It was a time when people didn't want to talk to their clients about money and making people comfortable that the clients wanted to hear from them. And it was not sort of an aggressive thing to talk about it. They were nervous about their money. And so from there, we got future opportunities over the next 15 years to work with Merrill and some amazing people to sort of help them carry their narrative at different times. So tell us about Total Merrill. Off camera here, you had sent me the original ad, which was in 2003, which is a hoot to see. And uh, if you describe the Total Merrill program, what is it? how to get started, what were some of the results, fill us in. Yeah, so around 2002, we got brought in to that classic kind of briefing session where 
I always remember Gorman was in the room. He was leading the group at that time and was all about asset gathering. Yeah. And I, if I could interrupt, John, so you're referring to James Gorman, now chairman, CEO of Morgan Stanley, but at the time, a senior exec at, at Merrill Lynch, right? Exactly. He's an imposing character. So when he tells you what you're going to do, you say, great, and you tr- go figure out a way to do it. But it was an asset gathering strategy and how to gather assets away, held away from the firm. And the woman that was running it at the time, running marketing was Paula Polito, who's now vice chair at UBS. And Paula had come out of the news business and come out of the agency business. So she was a master at narrative intuitively because she just knew how news sort of was managed. And so a couple things that happened in the year prior, we had tried to rationalize all the products and services that existed at Merrill. And we had created this really simple brochure for advisors to give to clients. And what we saw was that more advisors held on to that brochure and pinned it up in their offices so that they, because it was still mostly, there was no Zoom, it was a phone-based business, so they could not embarrassingly look at the product chart that we had created. And what the product chart started to do was it rationalized all the mix of products and services. And so we had been given the charge to sort of you know move from stockbrokers to wealth managers. We had been given the charge to be asset gatherers. We had been given the charge to move from transaction to fees. Just in one of those happenstance kind of ways, Paul and team, we started to see that this product organization that we had built of all the different product sets, and that became Total Merrill. That became how do we introduce investments and retirement and planning and banking and credit and lending? We had rationalized the product set. We took that product set and sort of you know, further designed it into Total Merrill as a way to meet Gorman's charge of gather assets, move from fees to transaction, and then launched it as Total Merrill. And then secondly, we did a really important piece, which was we brought the bull back. Bull had been sort of kicked off since the time the bull in the China shop, the famous sort of 70s piece. And what Paula intuitively understood was the importance of the financial advisor. And so... The thundering herd was not a, you know, Kamansky, David Kamansky talked about it all the time, but the thundering herd had been not been used as a marketing asset. And so when we brought back the bull and we juxtaposed that with Total Merrill, the magic really began because clients saw themselves in the bull, you know, and advisors saw themselves in the bull. And so we were really able to sort of bring sort of really modern sort of product offering back into the world with the advisor's support, with the client alignment. And I think you saw sort of the assets kind of grow from there. Yeah. And for our listeners who may not have been tuned into Total Merrill at the time, I've mentioned it to a few folks along the way and people kind of remember, but not really. This was the first time our industry talked about things in a comprehensive way. Up to that point, it was the shift. It was a turning point, really. A shift from transactions to fees, from individual securities to packaged programs like mutual funds and advisory programs. It was, there was a significant shift, a move toward lending. All of that was brand new back at the time. That was, in fact, frankly, uh, another guest on our podcast, John Thiel, who uh, at the time was a senior exec at Merrill, and his job was to get the advisors to like the new program. He said, we had to work at it. At first, they, a lot of advisors thought he was crazy, especially those that were you know, higher producers, that life was good, things were good, they did a business a certain way, and then there's this craziness about lending and financial planning and 
fees and all this other stuff that didn't fit to their way of doing business. So they, it wasn't like it just turned overnight. Certainly, I would expect, and you could comment on this, John, younger folks in the business kind of embraced it. They could see it coming, and it tends to be how that change tends to occur. But that was the first time, again, for our listening audience to understand, the first time in our industry that we really shifted to the way business is done today. Did I capture that accurately, John? It was a precursor to sort of the UMH, the unified household that everybody wants now. It didn't yeah. sort of live under that language, but that was no question the intent was to unify and capture all the assets held away. So fast forward a little bit, if we will, to today. We are doing this podcast late March and uh, just saw news the other day, uh, yesterday, that uh, Goldman Sachs bought Next Capital. Earlier, they had bought Folio Investing and they had bought uh, United Capital. So they're combining retirement and wealth management. You look at a group like Morgan Stanley, so shockingly, there's James Gorman again as chairman and CEO. And there they have built a robust, the most robust, in my opinion, wealth management platform. They've bought, they bought Solium, a planet, stock plan administrator. They've built out their retirement business with deals with Empower, the now the second largest record keeper and behind Fidelity in terms of the retirement side. They have deals with Vestwell. So they're really distribution deals in terms of making their, those programs available. You're seeing all this. They bought E-Trade to go direct to consumer. They bought Advanced Parametric to have uh, some expanded product capabilities. So there's Gorman again, packaging up capabilities, putting it together, all delivered through the advice platform. And I could keep going with all the different ways. JP Morgan and Orion and many others are starting to pull all this together. Again, I call it comprehensive advice platforms. That clearly is the wave of the future. And now in the wake of more people retiring than at any point in history, the total marital strategy of 20 or so years ago is now coming back as now this comprehensive advice platform. So, John, I know you have some thoughts on this. Talk about what all this means now that you're seeing it. History re repeat itself, only going deeper and faster, largely driven by the advances in technology. Yeah, I think the interesting piece to me now, sort of with the historical view in, in I'll nod my, tip my cap to John Thiel as well, just based on there was nobody better with the advisors than John as well, like Paula, just that mastery of the advisors. And I'll connect back to that. I think what you see in investor presentation after investor presentation and in sort of executive interview is it's all product platform and tech, right? There's so much emphasis on product platform and tech. And it's striking to me, having lived through the Total Merrill example, about how little emphasis is on the advisor and how management tends to commoditize the advisor, in a lot of ways, neuter the advisor, rather than actually leverage the advisor, right? Because I think the team that wins is going to be the team that can actually leverage the advisor plus the product platform and technology, and we'll see who can actually respect them. So talk a little bit more about that. I like that you're always provocative. So you're basically challenging senior management to pay closer attention to the advisor. Explain, explain why you think that is and why you think that's important. Yeah. My experience is too many senior managers, I won't put all, tend to view that frontline piece as kind of the dirty part, right? Those are the unwashed masses of the advisors that they have to put up with on the process to asset gathering. And if they could do it their way, they would do it without the, the advisor because it's just, but the reality is, is the front lines are complicated and the interactions with clients are complicated. And again, back to Total Merrill, that's the part that Paula understood, that's John Thiel understood, which is to the extent you put those people on a pedestal 
and leverage them and celebrate them and make them heroes, they'll do heavy work for you. And I'm going to use a Ukraine metaphor on this one. Here we go. <laughs> so I think most people probably aren't aware that the Russian military does not have non-commissioned officers. They don't have sergeants, sergeant majors, corporals. All they have is generals and privates, right? And part of the reason you see so the operational weakness is because they don't respect, they don't have a leadership layer in the middle, right? I think similarly, too many financial services firms now behave like the Russian military. They want the privates, they have the generals and the privates. They want the privates just to execute the strategy, just be robots. But without that advisor leadership level on the ground, the ground forces aren't as powerful. And I believe just like 20 years ago, you'll see people beating their heads against the wall, treating, but somebody will figure out how to light up the advisors, ignite the advisors, and sort of study their history a little bit on that one. And we'll sort of really capture that comprehensive platform. Because then when you have sort of the product mix in place and you can look all the way across. You can look from tax to invest, you know, tax alpha to investment alpha. Then you can really, if you have that sergeant major on the ground, now you can really win the battle. Otherwise, yeah. you're just talking at the client. So let me tie a couple things together on what you're talking about, which I happen to subscribe to with where you're going with all this. You're as good as anyone I know, and I pay close attention to this stuff. You're as good as anyone I know on the topic of narrative. And you also know, and it's part of what I do day in and day out, technology is is changing the game. It's getting more user-friendly. It's more seamless. It's more intuitive, all that kind of stuff. And as we've heard from many of our guests, you need the technology just because stuff is so complex. When you start to pull all the accounts together and you got to figure out how to maximize your retirement income, it's just a lot to it. A lot of moving parts, a lot of moving technologies, all that sort of stuff. So the industry is hell-bent on bringing that together, which is all good. Talk a little bit about the importance of technology and the importance of narrative. My sense is that on the narrative front, People want to talk to people and we talk in stories. That's how we connect. That's how we understand one another. It's a family. It's about hopes and dreams. It's all that kind of stuff. That's the narrative piece. And then the technology kind of need that because this stuff's so complicated. So maybe if you, I know I'm kind of throwing you a hand grenade here, but see if you can put those two together for us. Not a hand grenade at all. So I think when we reverse engineer sort of using some of the cool AI tools out there, sort of the most powerful companies the Teslas and the Apples, right? What you see really clearly jumps out is they all manage about five to seven narratives simultaneously, right? So if you think of Elon Musk, you have the, the Mars rocket narrative, you have the self-driving car narrative, you have the Elon Musk narrative, you have the production capability narrative when Wall Street was attacking him for not having production capacity. You have the pickup truck narrative. You know, there's about five to seven narratives that the best companies in the world manage simultaneously. So there's no question that these financial services firms all need to manage a tech narrative on in terms of just like the supercharger narrative for Tesla, right? Like you want to know that there's Teslas and then you pull into the mall and see the chargers, like it sort of reinforces the quality of buying a Tesla, but it can't be the only narrative, right? And I think always throughout history, everyone's always believed that tech will solve everything. And you're just seeing that behavior now that everyone believes it's not about that. It's about paying tribute to their part on the team. But at the same time, back to Total Merrill, we were messaging the advisors from outside to get them to do what we wanted to do because they didn't want to change to your earlier point. But when we sort of message them from outside, 
they, they were afraid their clients were going to ask them. So they changed. They weren't afraid of management. They were afraid that their clients were going to ask them. Right. 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 So right. You can put the advisor on a pedestal and challenge them externally. Yep, Those two yep. things aren't mutually exclusive. And it yep. goes back to that intuitive sense of managing five to seven narratives simultaneously. Yeah. And so it's not advisor versus product versus tech versus platform versus tax alpha versus investment alpha. It's actually how do you put those all together in a package? But there's too many managers, in my opinion, right now that want to win purely on tech and not actually connect on all the dots. And that's the opportunity. Like yeah. a good portfolio. Sure. Well, that's one of the things that uh, you and I have talked a good bit about this. John and I have the opportunity to get together from time to time to talk about how to be effective in terms of narrative and communication and all that good stuff. And you and I have talked about this, but uh, we had a guest on just recently, podcast will be forthcoming shortly, and he's head of planning at Raymond James, Frank McAleer, great guy. And what he was talking about is as technically astute as he is, and he's one of the more technically astute people. When I say technically, I'm talking about the elements of a financial planning exercise. He knows it as well as anyone around states and longevity and all sorts of stuff. So I'm not talking about so much the technology side, and he knows that stuff too, but it's really about all the stuff that matters, particularly as people age, as people look to take retirement income, sell a business, all the stuff that really matters fundamentally to investors. And his, his point was that it's all about empathy. Yeah, he can teach you all about financial planning and state planning and all that stuff. But he says it's about empathy. As you and I have talked about repeatedly, it's about listening. It's about understanding what the client's trying to achieve, their hopes, fears, and dreams, and getting it, and then turning to all the tools and products and all the great stuff we have. So talk a little bit about that, how important that empathy, that connection, that listening, that understanding is in terms of driving a narrative, at whether it's called Total Merrill or what we're seeing now underway with all these firms building and buying and developing comprehensive advice platforms. And you and I are so aligned on this. One of the things we've been studying recently is trust, is the concept of trust and what are the building blocks of trust and you know, a lot of the management science around it is there's three building blocks to trust. One is technical skills, one is relational skills, and one is institutional trust, right? And I think what you see today, in our opinion, too much is everyone trying to build trust purely on technical skills. Yeah. And yep. they're saying, no, it's better. It's faster. Don't you see like you should yes, trust me yes. because this is better, faster. And actually not spending or spending too little time on relational trust. And so... I'll keep sort of pounding the same point, but the financial advisors are pretty smart people. They can tell if there's relational trust in the organization, if there's institutional trust, or they're just trying to be replaced with technical trust, right? It's the yep. same thing we're seeing with CMOs and CEOs, which is there's simply not enough trust in that relationship. The CMO yes. wants yep. to be left alone, but CEOs are under more pressure now than they ever have been. More issues, more audiences competing for their time. They'll tell you that at 90% levels that it's more complex than it's ever been. Yep. If you can't walk in and build that empathy based on understanding those issues and those audiences, yep. uh, can't build that trust, you're dead. And it goes both ways. It's down bottom up with your team and top down from the management team. You tend to draw this out of me, but I'm going to give a little secret. I've been around for a while, as you know, pretty coming up on four decades in this business. And here's what I do each day. I talk to C-suite level people every single day. They're my clients. They're the people I do business with and, and so on. And I was having a conversation with a CEO of a substantial company recently, and we were catching up. We hadn't talked in a while. 
And as we were kind of catching up on family, and I've known this particular executive for probably 20, 25, 30 years, but maybe not all of it, but a long time. As we're chatting, I was just saying, you know, what I do each day is I have conversations with people. I try to shut up and try to listen, try to learn something. And so what ends up happening, I probably know more about what's going on in our industry than anyone. I don't say that to brag. I just, because I shut up enough that I listen, like I get it. Then when I do talk to people, I try to make sure that whatever I have to say is on point to their issue or concern and that it's useful, that it advances the cause. And you know this, we've talked about this often. And then guess what happens? They like me. They want to do business with me. It's magic. It's I, here's my secret sauce. And as she points out, then to your earlier point, John, she says, well, they trust you. And I know that. That is what I'm ultimately seeking, not as some goal, but rather if I do that, then the rest follows. I don't, you know, why wouldn't you? You know, if you're talking to friends and you're trying to help them fix their problems or address their issues or advance against the competition, whatever their issue might be, as you do that, as you listen, get it, empathize. I always make sure we're t- I'm talking about feeling one, I'm interested, but two, it matters to them. I talk about what matters to them. But talk a little bit, if you would, because you know this as well as anybody, in the realm of narrative, in the realm of trust, how important is this empathy thing? By the way, I represent a technology company. We spend a lot of time proving how smart we are. And we're to that. I, I have to remind my colleagues that it's not just about how smart we are. It's about understanding what our customers are trying to achieve and helping them achieve it. But maybe weigh in on that, because I know you, we are birds of a feather in that regard. Yeah, no. I mean, I was taught, trained that you always start the conversation with how can I help you, right? And I think too many conversations now, and and that is an empathy building question, right? That is a, it's, I'm not here for me, I'm here for you. Sure. Sure. Question. And too many meetings now, too many conversations at political levels, at business levels, at personal levels, at charitable levels, start with what I'm here for and what I want (laughs) from this conversation. And they don't start with how can I help? And I think to me, the magic is, you know, people like you have have sort of taught people like me and taught others just intuitively how that happens, you know, yep. just based on scar tissue and having learned it. <laughs> I did learn it the hard way, I will admit. <laughs> I think the interesting piece now is if we can make it sort of digestible for people to learn that by breaking it into some really simple pieces so that they can observe themselves really quickly and see, am I trying to operate only at this level or am I integrating this level? Like, am I trying to win it purely based on technical smarts versus actually relationship variables? And that's what you see mostly is really smart people trying to win people over by, don't you see how smart I am? Don't you want to give me all the responsibility because I am so smart? And they haven't even asked, how can I help you? Yeah, yeah. Well, I think it's spot on. So lesson for today, those listening in that are building comprehensive advice platforms or participating in them as a vendor or a product provider or whatever all else is, make sure whoever's on the other side of the table, try to find out what they're trying to accomplish and help them accomplish that, build trust, listen, all that. It seems so simple. Of course, it only took me many decades to figure it out, but as our industry goes ahead, it's not just about having the technology and the capability, but it's really as you listen to the, your customers, your constituents, your partners, your colleagues, and then uh, and from there, drive it forward to for a win-win. So enough pontification for me from now. So John, we're winding up here. What are the three key points you'd like to leave with our audience as we uh, start to wind down our conversation? I think the piece, number one, is narratives matter, right? And But it doesn't have to be one. It can It should be five to seven. And if you can think of it that way, 
I think you'll be much more in tune with the business. I think two, I reinforce that advisors matter and don't, you know, back to your point about trust and empathy, they can tell if you're not building trust and empathy. And if you view them as a sort of a pain in the butt and it doesn't mean you have to kowtow to them, but I think the winners in kind of capturing the comprehensive platform will be ones who figure out how to dial up the advisors. And then I think three is what we talked a little bit about, which was sort of that messaging outside in. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You're not going to win over your internal teams by shouting at them louder, bringing them together more often and shouting at them louder. You're going to get them in by, by motivating them through their sort of the marketplace and they're concerned that their, their customers, their clients are going to ask them. And that's the way to change behavior. Yeah, just a, one of our guests recently, Ben Haneke, who heads up the platform at Morgan Stanley, we had him on as a guest. And he, what he was talking about is the fact that they, uh, as they're building out technology, it's really to empower the advisor to deal with four, five, six times as many, as much in the way of assets, just because that's the way the world is going. Advisors are aging. They're not being replaced at nearly the same rate. They're just going to have to have bigger books. Yeah. And so they're going to have to use technology. So the message there is the technology is here to help you. It's here to help you, you know, be more efficient, more effective when they're sharing and, uh, as I heard uh, James Gorman say on their earnings call for 2021, as he was doing the recap, they had almost three times as much in the way of uh, net new assets in 2021, which was like three times as much as any single period before that. He called it a freakish amount of net new assets. Yeah, yeah. And basically what they did is they built technology to enable the advisor. I also noticed uh, another stat that Morgan Stanley has one of the lowest turnover rates in terms of advisors leaving. They just aren't leaving. Now, there's a bunch of reasons for that, but they kind of go hand in hand. Their advisors aren't leaving because mm -hmm. they're getting more assets. They're getting more assets because they have great technology. But there is an empowerment I observe that's going on at Morgan Stanley around the advisor, which uh, it's a win. You know, it's a win for everybody. It went for the client, went for the advisor, went for the firm. And I think you see that if you go out and just do a simple search of Morgan Stanley financial advisor, Merrill Lynch financial advisor, Wells Fargo financial advisor, you know, and and look and who's populating content around that. It's a pretty, really simple test about who cares and who doesn't care, right? It's a good test for who thinks they're, and I think you see your point on Morgan Stanley. Yeah, yeah. So one final question. I know you've been on before, so you're going to have to cook up a new one. But uh, as we do each week on our podcast, we like to ask the question of what you do that's interesting or unique outside of work that people might find interesting or surprising. What do you got for us this time, John? God help me. <laughs> I'm going to cheat and sort of do one that's kind of work and kind of quasi work and quasi not work. So last week, what I'm fascinated by is how you build culture in a non-office-based environment. Yeah, oh, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah. And so last week, we brought together sort of one civil rights icon. We had Ernie Green, who was part of the Little Rock Nine. And he spoke to the team about what it was like to cross the line, you know, back when they were integrating schools. We then had a general from Iraq and Afghanistan talking about what it was like to build culture in that environment. And then we had a museum CEO talking about it. And interesting. it's such an interesting. Um, so again, just on the geeky side of me, I'm fascinated by this challenge about how you build culture in a mindset-driven environment versus a physical-based environment. So what's your assessment of how that worked? I love, love what I heard. It was amazing to see three civil rights leader, military leader, and an arts leader, 
all next to each other every two hours and how consistent their advice was about yeah, people yeah. who sit on the sidelines versus people who jump in the game. Interesting. And sort of the inspiration about, you know, some people are built to sort of be employees and some people are built to be leaders. And their advice was you never know when that moment's coming. Yeah, but you've yeah. got to jump in because everyone, Ernie Green had this great line about how many people from his high school in Little Rock came up to him late years later and said, I, sh- I was almost going to do that too, you know, or in the <laughs> right, military, right. I almost was going to do that. Yeah. So <laughs> fascinating stuff. Well, that's great. I'm not surprised that you did that. And I will add for those of you who are listening in, as you probably can pick up on John and I are, are friends and we talk about this stuff when we're not on a podcast, I would be remiss if I did not mention, if you want to, uh, develop a narrative in our business, I would call the Boathouse Group and I would call John Connors, uh, no one that knows it better. So uh, my uh, commercial message for the moment. So thank you, John, for for joining us on the podcast for this discussion. For our uh, guests, if you've enjoyed our podcast, please rate, review, subscribe, and or share what we're doing here at Wealth Tech on Deck. We're available wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you again, John. It's been a real pleasure and I look forward to the next conversation. Thanks for the time, Jack. Really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to this episode of Wealth Tech on Deck, our ongoing conversation about improving financial outcomes for all. This podcast is brought to you by LifeYield and produced by Reverb. Subscribe to future episodes in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can connect with our host, Jack Sherry, on LinkedIn and Twitter. And for more information about our perspective on the future of financial advice, visit our website at lifeyield.com.